Thanks for leading us in singing today, you guys. That's terrific. Hey, welcome here today. It's great to see each and every one of you. My name is Tom. If I haven't met you, I'd love to do that. i got to ask an opening question here. What is, I just want you to think about it. What is one thing you can do, one thing that will actually make a difference in someone's life? Just think about this. Like, well, just, just think about it. Yeah, just listen. <laughs> what is one action you can take? That, now let's expand it. What's one action that if you took, but if others took it, and we repeated that action, would actually result in shifting people's perspective about themselves, their experience in life, and even their understanding of God? What would that be. I mean, I think it's a provocative question. It's a, it's a thoughtful question, a, a question that I'm wondering about. I mean, what, what could we do that would actually change the nature of the relationships around us? Maybe, maybe with a stranger, maybe with a friend, maybe with a neighbor, maybe even with an enemy. What's that one thing that, that we could do? I think it's a provocative question because when you think about it, relationships usually make the most of the things that are good in our lives and also a struggle in us. I mean, I know there can be natural disasters and there can be terrible accidents and health crises, I get it. But a lot of the good in our lives, and let's be honest, a lot of the struggle in our lives, thank you. Oh, man, the good in our lives. Did you see that? I blew my vocals in the time of singing because it was so awesome. Anyway, so let's see if I have any left for sermon. <clears throat> Most of the stuff in, in our lives that's good or negative, difficult, is, is somehow connected to our relationships with, with others. And so what's the action that we could take if you had to identify just one that would move those relationships in the right direction, like toward health and goodness and vibrancy, as opposed to toward isolation or negativity or, or even more difficulty. And isn't that the question that people are looking for from governments to schools to families to, you know, we're looking for like, what is that thing? What's the catalyst that would create that kind of change? What's the leverage point that we could use? What's the, what's the kind of habits we could institute? What, what's the kind of policies we could do? What, what kind of things could we do in life that would actually create that kind of, of change, move things in the right direction, make a real difference in this world. And surprisingly, we discover the answer to that in one little verse in Ruth during one little noonday meal in this short story. Because through this one meal, God's desire for every man, woman, and child shines through. Now, you may not believe me yet, but let's dive in. We're four weeks into a story called Ruth. It's a, it's a short story. It's only four chapters long, and it's tucked in to the Old Testament ancient stories of Israel. It's like the eighth, it's like the eighth book in the collection of the Old Testament. And it's around the time of the judges, a time of history in Israel. And the story of Ruth begins as a tragic tale of a family facing ruin. And then, as we read, begins to shift as we see that God is somehow at work in the midst of the ruin. He's at work to rescue this family and alter the course of history. Because astonishingly, 
We haven't got there quite yet, but astonishingly, what God does in Ruth affects even us. Right here. Because it's through her family that Jesus eventually comes. Well, where, where are we in the story for, so far? Naomi uh, has lost her husband and sons. She's returned to her hometown, Bethlehem, with Ruth, her foreign Moabite daughter-in-law in tow, and she is also a widow. And they've returned to Bethlehem right at the beginning of the first of the spring harvests, the barley harvest. Just before leaving Moab, Ruth has sworn her life to Naomi, and she's come back with Naomi to ensure Naomi's care and survival. And so in those first few days back in Bethlehem, Naomi and Ruth settle into life in whatever that looked like as grieving, depressed, impoverished widows with no future and no resources. Must have been awesome. Naomi is devastated. She's convinced that her God, Yahweh, the personal name of God, her God, Yahweh, has not only stopped loving her, but has actually actively become her enemy, turned against her family. She took to calling herself a new name, bitter. Which probably was an accurate description. But her, her daughter-in-law, Ruth, gets up in the morning, determined to fulfill her vow to Naomi. And so she heads to the fields to find food. Whatever Ruth was herself experiencing, whatever displacement or depression or grieving she was going through, her vow and their hunger motivated her to get going. And so she finds, to her surprise, that her reputation for faithfulness has actually gone ahead of her. She finds favor in the fields of Boaz, and and she's given special permission to collect grain right among the harvesters themselves instead of following along after and just picking up the missing pieces left behind. And we find out that this special permission was granted because Boaz wanted to honor Ruth's loyalty to Naomi, and he extended his protection and his provision for them. And we, we explored last week how God's favor, shown through Boaz, but how God's favor followed Ruth's faithfulness. I encourage you, if you haven't caught up or if you missed last week, to catch that online, ericksoncovenant.ca or on on iTunes under our our church name. Last week, though, we broke off the story right before lunch. How painful was that? Well, we broke off just before lunch so you could go to lunch, but we broke off just before lunch in the story The morning of that first harvest day, Ruth had already got permission from Boaz to continue harvesting. He even offered a refreshment from his own men's water. And now the story continues, and it's time for lunch. And it's at this lunch that we get a glimpse of this one thing that can change everything, this one action that can shift perspective, experience. In fact, in this meal, lunch, we get a rare Old Testament preview of God's plan for all of us, for all people. It's a short verse. I printed it in your bulletin. It's even going to be on the screen. We're not going to go through a whole bunch today. We'll save the rest for later. Here it is, Ruth 2.14. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here. Have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, He offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. There it is, folks. That's it. That's the one thing you can do. (laughs) And I know there's a... uh, Okay, Tom, you made a big claim at the start of your message that uh, this story was going to reveal the thing that we can do that will make a huge difference in our relationships. And then you told us the story of a picnic. 
at lunch, at a work site. What's going on here? Is it possible that this one meal could tell us what we need to be doing to make the world better? That it could even tell us God's plan to make the world whole again? You know, can one lunch do that much? Well, let's unpack it and see. So Boaz has already shown his true godly colors in the way that he's responded to Ruth's request to glean among the harvesters. Unprecedented ask. We explored that last week. Rather than shooing her away or pushing her to the back of the line, Boaz honors her faithfulness and sought her provision. But we find out that Boaz isn't done yet. Boaz now extends hospitality in an extraordinary way. Here's the setting. People have been working all day so far. I mean, from early in the morning, they've been working in the fields. The noonday sun is up. It's hot. It's dusty. People are thirsty. Now, I, I can sympathize. You know, when I was a young man, I was raised on a farm, which meant I spent a lot of time on tractors, dusty, dusty tractors. And I remember with vivid detail an entire quarter section that needed to be cultivated. When you're 15 and the line is a half a mile long, and then guess what you do at the end of the half mile? You turn around and drive back again, trying desperately to stay focused enough so that when dad comes, I don't get balled out for this going on in the fields. You know what, an S curve, trying to keep it straight. So up and down the fields, dusty, hot, no stereo, no XM radio back then. I'm humming to myself. I'm looking around. I'm so, you know, whatever. Okay, so I'm back, forth, back, forth, back, forth. And I don't even think I had a watch. I don't even know what time it was. But all I knew, I'd been out there for, uh, probably at that point, I'd been out there for about, oh, you know, 48 hours. At least that's how it felt. <laughs> so I'm going back and forth. And then, oh, on the horizon, dust. Someone's coming. And it's mom with lunch. And I could see her driving from, you know, a long ways away, like a mile away. <laughs> and... I was done with that. You know, shut off the track, get down in the shade of the tractor. And one of my favorite things was lunch would come and the Coke would be cold and the sandwiches would be ready and there would be extra treats and chocolate. I don't know what. And we'd sit down in the shade of the tractor with the dogs and have lunch. I love that. So I can empathize with what it's like to be here in the middle of the day on a hot harvest day. It's dusty. You've worked hard. You've sweated. And now you can get to some shade and enjoy some lunch. And so we find that there's probably a shelter that's been set up. It's been referenced a little earlier. Ruth had been in it for a little bit of a break. And now the harvesters have gathered to eat probably in the shade. Ruth may have hovered around the edge. Maybe she'd even come in for that drink that Boaz had promised. Perhaps she just even kept working while everyone else rested. You know, it's possible that Ruth didn't even have much of a lunch with her, considering their circumstances. Whatever it was, Boaz sees her. She's some distance away, and this this boss, this wealthy, older, privileged man, he notices her, and he waves her over. That's actually the meaning of this word. Come over here. It's like calling to someone who's a ways away and waving them over. Come over here, he says. And he welcomes her to be seated at his lunch, at his table. Boaz hosts her as a special guest. Now, we can easily miss how outstanding this is. 
But in ancient culture, class divisions were actually reinforced at mealtimes. That was one of the places where everyone knew where everyone stood. And so at a mealtime, you, you know, the rich and the poor were separated. Men were separate from women. And even you know, the foreigners would certainly not be mingling with the locals. And even if some of those rules were relaxed at a, you know, at a harvest meal, noontime, after, you know, hot day of work kind of thing, even if that were true, Ruth would never have normally been included at the table with Boaz. Ruth's a foreign, poor female. <laughs> Everything that Boaz is not. And let me make something perfectly clear here. This is not a romantic gesture. Boaz does not have the hots for Ruth. That's weird. No, seriously. It's, it's, it's a weird way. Boaz is not, he's not to get the heart flutters for, for Ruth. And, and when we see romance in this story, it tells us more about us than it does about them. It's one of the ways the reading of Ruth has been skewed in the 20th and 21st century. We view it as a romance. Boaz and Ruth, you've got to get this. They're on different galaxies in every way that mattered. He is wealthy. And she, in her own words, but not inaccurately, is lower than the lowest of his servants. He is an Israelite of significant lineage. You know, when the, when the people of Israel were traveling after they'd been rescued out of Egypt, and they traveled for, well, 40 years, do you know, when they had to pack up their whole camp and move, they had an order to things. A certain clan would go first. And if the head of that clan would be a certain leader, guess who that leader was? Boaz's grandpa. He'd lead the whole people of Israel on their journey. This is significant lineage. She was the member, female member, of a despised enemy race. They hated these guys. And if you read the Old Testament story, you find out Moabites are not good. Moabites are who we reject. Even explicitly, it's written in different places. And she's a Moabite. Furthermore, she'd been married for a decade and hadn't had any kids. Which, in a day and age when family lineage is everything, having kids, particularly sons, is everything, it absolutely put her out of the running as any kind of future mate. That's not what's going on here. And yet, and this just highlights it, and yet, Ruth is offered food from Boaz's own hand. He serves her. All the things I mentioned just highlight how amazing this is. Not some weird ulterior motive. Boaz is extending welcome to her as an expression of his love for Yahweh and his deep respect for her faithfulness to Naomi. We can glide over that. We're very sensitized nowadays by egalitarian values where women are, of course, on equal footing with men. That's what God always desired. But what Boaz does here runs completely counter to his own culture. And it's a powerful indication that the God who created men and women to be equal, to be co-creators, to be with him in his work, the God who rescued his people out of oppression, out of his slavery, and set them on a course to be a people who, in their very life together, would witness what God desired, that that God is actually present and operational in this man's life, in this man's fields. It's evidence of that. It's a stunning picture. A gleaner. Seated among the harvesters, among the paid workers, a a Moabitess with Israelites, a man serving a woman, poor included among the rich, an outsider being embraced by the inner circle. I mean, doesn't this sound like someone else you know? I mean, 
Isn't it remarkably similar to other meals that we've noticed? Because if you've ever heard any of the stories about Jesus, he did this kind of stuff all the time. You know, Jesus, you could think of his life in the, in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as Jesus walking around, and he's constantly waving people over. Hey, come over here. I mean, that's what he's doing, right? Hello, you. Yeah, hey, hey, yeah, yeah. No, I'm not kidding. You, come over here. And it could be outcasts. It could be, quote, unquote, sinners that everyone else had rejected. It could be people that thought, there is no way I could ever be included. It could be the kind of people that no one else wanted to do with it. And we find out that that's exactly who it was. Tax collectors, those robbing thieves, prostitutes, like what, are, what, no one her around, she'll corrupt the kids. Those are the kind of people that Jesus is saying, you, yeah, 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 come over here. He's waving them over. And then he's calling them family. It's astonishing. And this kind of wave them over hospitality was the hallmark of Jesus' ministry. He welcomed outsiders and he made them family. And what I want us to do today is to draw a line between what Boaz did and what Jesus did. Because it's when we notice the connection between what Boaz is doing here at this lunch and what Jesus did with all his ministry that we begin to see God's purpose for us revealed. God has always desired that we, that his people, be winsome to others. Be winsome, in fact, to the nations. To be a people who reveal in their actions, in their words, in their hospitality, in their constant waving people over, that they would actually reveal God's intention for the world. You know, Jesus came and made this intention that we see through the old story. He made it explicit. Jesus himself said, I came to seek and save the lost. He said, I didn't come for the healthy, I came for the sick. He said, come unto me, all you who weary and are heavy laden. Or as we learned at our first encounter Jesus study, he's saying, come and you will see. Come and you will see. And they did. They came in droves. They were constantly flocking Jesus. They could not believe that they were included. <laughs> Neither could the religious people, though, because it ticked them off, right? They're constantly looking at Jesus and saying, what are you doing? Why did you invite them? How can you call yourself a rabbi and hang out with those people? And then to top it all off, you're sitting, you're eating and drinking with them as though they're okay. You know, constantly religious leaders are freaking out because they cannot see what God is doing in Jesus. It's actually interesting. Jesus made his everyday life about two things. One, inviting people into God's kingdom. And two, <laughs> readying his disciples to keep doing what he did, leading the church to keep doing what he did for generations to come. And he did it all through this party-throwing, you know, banquet-hosting, come-one, come-all kind of invitation for anyone and anyone, anyone at all to come and to eat and drink and sit and be with him. This is Jesus. And when Jesus went to the cross, he made God's intention, God's plan, he made it history. He made it fact. Through Jesus' death on the cross, God actively ripped down all the walls that were keeping people apart from each other. Some of you might remember, we spent all last summer, can you remember back to last summer? We spent all last summer 
In a letter written by one of the early church leaders, Paul, written to Christians in the city of Ephesus, it's called the letter to the Ephesians, and he, in this letter, made this super clear. When Jesus died on the cross, he fulfilled God's desire to make all people one people. By taking all the violence, all the evil, all the sin, all the division, all the hate unto himself, Jesus annihilated all the things that kept people apart. He made it possible for people to come back to the same table, to be part of the same family. And because of what he did, we can now live in that truth and live out that truth. That in Jesus, Paul wrote in another one of his letters, in Jesus there is now neither Jew nor Gentile, There's ethnic division. We still see it all over the place, but not. Shouldn't be seeing it in the church. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave nor free. The biggest economic division between rich and poor, right there. Neither is there male nor female. All the gender and the sexism, which we'll be addressing specifically in a couple weeks um, because it emerges out of this passage. But here here we see, he says, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, but you are all one in Christ Jesus. All those divisions that kept people apart have been eliminated on the cross of Jesus Christ. Eliminated once for all. Jesus made God's plan a fact of history. And now in the church, we continue to live that out as we love across those lines. You know, throughout the New Testament, this plan of God was referred to as a mystery that's been now revealed. And why did they refer to that way? Because no one back in the old days, in the old days of Moses or days of, well, it wasn't Ruth, really, in the, the days of Esther, the days of Isaiah or David, these, these people from the Old Testament, you know, they didn't really catch on what God was up to. They didn't really know that that's where this story was going. But, but Jesus, in his daily ministry and his constantly eating and drinking with people, in his grisly death, this long-held mystery was now dramatically unveiled. God's plan was put into effect and it was established as a historical fact. But just because it was referred to as a mystery unveiled doesn't mean we don't see hints of it in the Old Testament. You know, there's a, there's a hint of it when Abraham, sort of the father of faith, when Abraham was told, I'm going to bless your family so your family can be a blessing to everyone else. Well, there's a big hint that that's where this story is going. We see it at times, there's different times in the story, but like, for example, when the prostitute Rahab Early on in the book of Joshua, when they're coming into the land that God has promised them, when this, this prostitute Rahab, talk about an outsider, foreign, female, you know, all the things added on top of that, the lifestyle she had lived, she is welcomed into the family of God, in fact, becomes one of the forebears of Jesus himself. Wow, well, that's a big hint too. And then, then we see visions given, uh, prophetic visions given to the prophets about a time when people who formerly had worshipped, you know, Shemosh or Moloch or Baal or all these wicked, awful gods that did destructive things to people and led to oppressive behaviors, the people who had worshipped that are now giving praise to Yahweh. And they would envision the time when that was true. These were all big old hints. And here at this mealtime in Boaz's field, we witness God's global historical intention expressed through Boaz's gracious hospitality. And in fact, it's one of the more explicit hints we get, at least within the setting of a story like this. When we draw a line from Boaz to Jesus, and then when we extend that line further, we discover something compelling. 
that this radically countercultural hospitality of Boaz points toward this kingdom come, banquet throwing, come one, come all, mission of Jesus, and then on to the Holy Spirit empowered mission or commission of the church. Simply put, we're called to be the church of Jesus, men, women, teenagers, kids, who wave people over. We're waving people over. That's our call. Our mission is to include the outsider, to welcome the foreign, to serve those who feel displaced or feel awkward or feel unnoticed. We, we look around us. We notice the person on the fringe, the person who doesn't feel there's any way they're ever going to be part of the group. And we do everything in our power to welcome in the stranger, the unnoticed, the unloved, to make them feel welcome, to feel safe to feel loved. How do we do this? I think in two ways. First, we wave people over when we gather. Even here on Sunday, when we gather as the church. What do I mean? Well, if you've been around here for any length of time, you know that we are committed as a church to helping people find and follow Jesus. This is our mission, which means that we're committed to do everything we can to help people who are far away from Jesus. Help people who never would have considered church. And the idea of church just makes them break out in hives. The the religion is so off-putting, it makes them just want to throw up. Those kind of people, people who would say, "I I don't think that's a place for me. I think those people are weird. They don't think you're weird. They just think church is weird. Well, maybe you're a little weird, but you know, the the, the idea of church is so foreign and so far off that we, 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 this is what we say, we want those kind of people to discover that this community, that this place is a place where they are actually welcomed, more than welcomed. We've actually set the table for them. Like we actually have done everything within our power. We've actually bent over backward to make sure that they know this is the kind of community they can grow in. They can explore faith in. They can ask their questions. They can dive right in if they know nothing and feel like this isn't a place for them. They can discover this is a place, in fact, that's safe. Now, I know to wave people over means, of course, of course that means we invite people to church. I get that, and I know that many of you are active in doing that. But it actually also means that we make our gatherings welcome. We, make, we strive to make our gatherings engaging for those who would not find a time like this comfortable. I mean, where else do you go except after you've had too many things to drink? Where else would you go with a group of people who just sing stuff? That is weird. Like, step back for a moment. That is weird. Where else would you go? So how do, we, how, do we, how do we do this so that people who would find that weird say, yeah, it is kind of strange, but, but I like it. You know, the music was good, and, and the people were, you know, they kind of explained what was going on, and I, I felt like I could, I, could, I could be there. It means, very significantly, that we play host. Now, I know we have a dream team who, by the way, would love to have you serving with them, We have a dream team that specifically gathers every Sunday morning to make sure that our experience is good and that people are welcome. That is true. But that doesn't offload our responsibility. If you call the Erickson Covenant Church home, like you'd say, this is where I go, then guess what? You are the host. We have a responsibility to play the host, to be looking around on a Sunday morning, even as we gather. 
noticing during coffee time who was on the fringe, who was sitting alone, who came alone, who needs you to effectively wave them over, or better yet, you go over to them. Who is that? We take responsibility, each and every one of us individually, to play the hosts. So the people who would find this kind of thing strange and weird discover that they belong here because we've bent over backward to make it so. We position ourselves as a church to be the kind of church that people who would never come to church could come and be comfortable and actually discover who God is and make steps toward him. We really need to get this. Who we include in our gatherings, who we include says more about who we think the church is for than anything we could say or do. We wave people over even as we gather. That's the first one. But you know, that's just the tip of the iceberg. That's like the little piece at the top. All the rest is down below because really where the action really happens is how we wave people over as a church when we are scattered throughout our weeks into our schools, into our fields, into our workplace, in our homes, and on the streets, and the places where we interact and connect, that we live our lives hospitably, that we are always on the lookout for that person who is on the edge, on the fringe, feeling devalued, thinking no one notices. Whether they necessarily come across that way or not, we begin to recognize that everyone around us is looking for a place to belong, and they're wondering where that might be. And we live our lives then open to others, even asking God to show us who around us needs to be included. We make it our mission in life to include others in our life. And while that can be through, you know, a fancy meal and a barbecue, and some of you are so gifted that it stuns the rest of us. And so we say, go forth and conquer. Keep doing it. But what that can do, though, for some of the rest of us who think, well, I can't offer, you know, I can't do a rotisserie chicken like Gary Cote can, so therefore I can't have. No, no. We want those to offer the fancy barbecues and the meals. That's great. But really what we're talking about here is waving people over in the very fabric of our everyday lives. This is in the hallways at high school where you see that one kid that no one talks to, and maybe it's because he's super irritating. I don't know. You see the one kid that feels like he, he's not noticed or she's not valued or, or she's desperately trying to get attention. And it's you, it's you sitting with your circle of friends and saying, hey, come over here. Come and sit with us. It's you in your workplace having your eyes open to see who is on the fringe, who is longing for friendship, who is unnoticed. And it's noticing them and it's crossing those lines and it's waving them over. It's right in the fabric of our everyday lives. You know, what things are we involved in, whether it's shinny hockey or whether it's, it's, it's a club of some kind or, or maybe it's just a group of friends, a group of friends that we feel super comfortable with and we just love to be with because they all pat each other on the back and we just feel so great. But maybe God is calling you to wave someone else over. Maybe God is saying, who are you going to include? We wave people over. When we as the church, as we as the church, scatter throughout the week. And I believe that who we invite to our table, who we wave over, signals ultimately what we believe about God's mission to the world, his heart for others. And this is the key missional point for all of us, that waving people over, that showing them hospitality is at the very center of God's mission to change the world. Here it is, folks. It's the one thing. 
It's the one action that if you and I would take it and press repeat, press repeat. I guess you shouldn't have to press repeat more than once. But you press repeat and you keep doing it. And you inspire others to do it. This is the one thing that if we would extend ourselves to others, if we would wave them in from the outside, if we would do what Jesus did, it would change everything for them and for us. The story of Boaz's hospitality reveals God's plan to include outsiders in his family. And Jesus, his relentless welcome to outcasts and sinners and rejects, he made that plan real and his death made it a fact. And then he turned around and he commissioned his followers to keep doing the same thing until they die. Don't stop. Keep doing it until I come back. And so as we finish today, let, let me just ask you to consider this question. Who are we waving over? Who are we waving over? Who are you waving over? Like, who's in your life that needs to get your invitation or is getting your invitation? Who's being welcomed into your circle of friends? Who are we as a church? Who are we expecting that might gather? Like, I don't mean just, you know, faintly wondering, but like, we have laid the table for them. We have prayed for them. We have done everything possible so that when they come, if they come, should they come, that they would experience a welcome like no other. And I know this has been true for some of you. I know when I look back, I know that some of you, that's exactly how you discovered the Erickson Covenant Church, that this happened to be a place that shock of all shocks you could discover you know, and, and ask and, and be welcomed. And you found you didn't have to, like, do a bunch of weird things. And, and, and you even found out that the people around you were relatively normal. At least as normal as anyone else in your life. Except that they were oriented around Jesus. And, and you discovered in this community that, that you could take steps forward in a safe place. And I know some of you are already looking back a few years and recognizing that was true for you. Some of you are right in the middle of that now where you have discovered this is the place and you yourself are taking steps forward. You yourself have found, okay, you know, I can, I can, I can go there. I can meet with those people. I can, I can discover. And I want you to know that is good. We are excited that you would feel welcomed here, that that, that would be a thing for you because, frankly, it's what we're all about. It's what we're all about. You can even conduct a little hospitality audit, you know. You can ask, we can ask, who have we been including? Who have we been missing? Who's included in my life that would not normally be in my life? You know, it's easy to look around and say, well, I, I love to get together with my friends. Yeah, great. But who would you include that isn't normally included? That's the mission of Jesus. And let me say this before I finish. If you're not a follower of Jesus today and you think, I don't believe in the Bible at all. I don't even know what Ruth is. I mean, I had a neighbor named Ruth, but I don't know what Ruth is. And you're thinking, I don't believe in the Bible. I'm not sure about Jesus. Let me just throw this out to you. You don't have to believe in the Bible. You don't have to believe in Jesus to make this work for you. You could actually go home today into your work next week, and you could think to yourself, okay, that preacher, I don't remember his name, said that we should be more welcoming to others. You know, if you at your workplace or you on your neighborhood street said, I'm going to look for people that are lonely and not included, and I'm going to effectively wave them over. I'm going to invite them to have a coffee. I'm going to say, hey, let come over for supper, or, or just, you know, bump into them and let's chat for a while. I'm telling you something. It'll make a huge difference in their life, especially someone who's lonely, feels like no one notices. Maybe a kid in your street, maybe someone in your workplace. If you were to extend yourself to them, not only would it make a huge difference in their life, 
but it actually think it made a huge difference in yours. So that's a throwaway for those of you who think the Bible's bunk and I'm not sure I believe any of this. Hey, you know what? This will work for you too. But for anyone who is a follower of Jesus, this is our commission. I mean, this is what Jesus actually told us to do. In fact, he told us to make our lives all about this. Making disciples, welcoming the stranger, waving over the outsider, beckoning, calling to those who are far away, waving them over to our tables, waving them over to our gatherings, waving them over to our bench or our huddle or our circle or our life. That is everything because here's the bottom line. We can't win over anyone that we're not willing to wave over first. We can't win over anyone that we're not willing to wave over first. So who are we waving over? Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that in an incredibly profound way, you waved us over. You got our attention. Even for those of us today who may not even be sure of what you're up to, we've felt your wave. Because we're here and we're wondering. And for those of us who've made a decision to follow Jesus, we know how significant it is that you waved us over, that you extended yourself to us, that you did everything possible so that we'd be included in your family, so we could be free and restored and forgiven. Jesus, I pray today that we would be people who extend that wave to others. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, God bless you today. Really happy you're here. And I look forward to connecting you at coffee time. God bless.